Hi and welcome back to the Goo Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 66 and I'm very pleased to bring back to you uh, Dr. Dwayne Meller. Hi Dwayne. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good mate, I'm good. So of course you've been on this podcast uh, before. We talked about evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice. Very, very popular episode. Um, but uh, and actually in that episode, if I recall, we, we did talk about your various research interests and so on. And I'll let you reintroduce yourself um, in a second for the listeners, just in case they haven't caught up with that episode yet. But I wanted to um, bring you back on because you have a very, um, a very special set of skills <laughs> um, and knowledge um, in diabetes, which is something that um, I feel that we, you know, we, we, it's well overdue that we got into this topic. So before we get into diabetes and nutrition and exercise and that sort of thing, um, just give us a quick, quick overview as, as to who you are. Well, I'm currently an assistant professor in dietetics at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Um, my main role here is teaching dietitians uh, to become dietitians um, and look after the placement side of training here. Um, I also get involved in little bits of research. Uh, my PhD was looking at the effect of chocolate, high polyphenol chocolate in type 2 diabetes. And I worked as a diabetes specialist dietitian before going to academia for well over a decade. And sort of other areas are interested around sort of stigma and the effect of stigma around weight and food. And uh, also, it seems to come to a lot of these things called superfoods, which I don't really think exist. And, you should look at diets and better diets rather than special foods. So that's taken quite a lot of time at the moment. I love I love that word superfoods. It's like you know what is that? Is that like a an apple with a cape on or something? It's yeah, kind of... <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't get it when you look at pictures on the website about food. That why are so many people obsessed with putting tape measures around an apple? <laughs> um, I don't yeah. get yeah yeah. If you've got a course about anything to do with health, nutrition, weight. Please don't have an apple with a tape measure on it. What does it say, really? Well, my apple's bigger than your apple, Dwayne. There you go. Oh, yeah. Is your apple the right shape? Is it the right... Yeah. It's nonsense. Well, It's not really helpful, really. No, but I mean, well, this is a major red herring, of course, but that stuff is interesting because, of course, that is very much about how we dress up things to give them the impression of being good or healthy, you know, uh, like the cut, you know, something's coloured green, or um, you know, we use words like healthy or super or whatever. But of course, it's you know, I'm going to I'm going to kick this off early. It's context is always an issue. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, the word is not meant to be said. Uh, um, and if you notice, a lot of these milkshakes are now and even cereals with protein on it for no obvious reason. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Or uh, fat-free water or low-cholesterol low yeah. water. <laughs> and, and, and sort of yeah. probably helping to steer back to topic, it's very relevant for sort of end consumers and particularly people with diabetes might need to know accurate information about food to, to, to adjust their medication, particularly around exercise. Well, that you that was professional segue, Dwayne. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought we could yeah. go off on a tangent and have a we could. podcast. We, we could, we could. Okay, look, so, uh, you know, I know that you have a lot of knowledge uh, and expertise, both as a, as a practitioner, 
um, actually working with, with the sorts of people that we're about to discuss and also you've, you, you have academic and research interests in this. But the, the reason why I'm interested in this, because I'm not a clinician, I'm not a dietitian, um, but I am a physiologist and a, and a sports nutritionist and in my work from time to time I do come across athletes that have diabetes or pre-diabetes, all, we'll discuss what all these terms mean. Um, and I've mentioned many a time that we don't just work with you know athletes, they're human beings first and they can have all the likes and dislikes and health conditions of, of, of anyone in our society, mm. including diabetes. And just a, a you know a cursory look at the data out there, um, you know there are absolutely masses of people that, that have this issue. So that's why I wanted to talk about it, because whether or not the listener is a, a coach, a sports scientist, a, you know, a, a, a sort of a molecular biologist stuck in the lab or whatever, if anything that we do is in any way related to helping the health and or performance of, of human beings, this is going to be something that, that is relevant. Um, so maybe what we should do is is kick this off with you know with a description then of of what is diabetes and then we'll sort of, we'll, we'll try and go from there. Well, I think there's, there's quite a few bits on pack there. So starting with diabetes, obviously for those of us who lack the classical training uh, from a comprehensive school education like myself, I had to look it up and diabetes comes from siphon, so it means to wee a lot. Uh, when we talk about diabetes in the news, in the media. It's really nine out of ten talking about type two diabetes mellitus, which is a chronic uh, high blood glucose, which most people call sugar level, linked typically to insulin resistance, and quite often is a, a sort of associated with uh, carrying excess weight. There is sort of around about ten percent with the diabetes mellitus, the 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 honey siphon. Going back to the Greek, just to show off something, um, is where there is a lack of insulin produced, so it needs to be taken from outside. Type two diabetes is, as I insulin resistance. So the insulin, the hormone, perhaps the muscles taken more the glucose as well as other tissue taken the glucose doesn't work as effectively. So the body has to make more of it to get the glucose levels down, and eventually the pancreas starts to, to fail, and then the, the glucose levels rise. You can also get diabetes, um, first of all, pregnancies, called gestational diabetes. There are other sorts, such as the um, genetic, myogenetic diabetes of sort of in childhood. There is something called MODI, which is a maturity onset diabetes in youth, which is not as common. But also you get something called Lada, which is not a Eastern European car, but it's actually something <laughs> that's like type 1 diabetes, but it's a latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood. So it's a slow starting type 1. So most of it, 80% of it is type 2 diabetes linked to to having sort of excess body weight as well as genetics, around about sort of 10% or so is type 1 diabetes. And we're talking in the UK, roughly, I think figures are close to 3 million people having diabetes, around about 6%, I think, of the adult population. It's very high and low in different parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge number of people, isn't it? And, and of course, if you then factor in you know, this whole idea of pre-diabetes, which hopefully you can give us an overview of, you know, I, I guess 
I mean, pretty much we know, if we don't know a diabetic, we certainly know someone that knows someone with diabetes. Um, yeah, and sort of, sorry to pick up on yeah. this slide, is, you know, there's various PC sort of terms that, you know, you know, saying the word diabetic, and I hesitate to say that, it's sort of giving the, the label rather than having the person first. Yeah. And sort of, uh, there is a sort of trend now, and there's actually a journal called Diabetic Medicine, quite ironically, that actually will not accept the word diabetic as to be a person with diabetes. So, and I think that's a good message for any sort of focus into the health, nutrition, exercise. The person comes first, and all the other features you work with, but you work with that person, their needs first. So I think we talked about that last time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How we look at these things, you know, like it, you know, we either feel that we're sort of tarnished with sort of the black death or, yeah. you know, you need to be isolated into some random sort of diabetes colony so that you don't infect the rest of the population. But I guess indirectly, some of the, I've got to be careful how I say this, but there are some infectious things going on here, but it might be more infectious habits and behaviours that lead to the disease rather than... Yeah. You know, I touch you and you've got diabetes. In, in terms of type 2 diabetes, there are one or two studies that suggest that if your partner has type 2 diabetes because of the shared environment, which would be food choice, physical activity, and increasingly body weight, and that they've done sort of studies where they've done DEXA scans of couples, and for some reason, fat deposition seems to be similar. There's a correlation. So it's an association of causality. We need to be clear, you know, haven't spoken about evidence in the past. And there's some suggestion that we tend to either pick people with a similar physical attribute to ourselves, something called assortive mating, which is widely known in the animal world, probably less recognising humans, or because of the shared environment long-term, diet, exercise, other environmental factors, that can potentially increase risk of you know, weight gain, diabetes, yeah, the pre-diabetes is an interesting one, whether that is a, a useful or non-useful term and whether we should focus on sort of promoting health generally and that would remove the problem is an interesting debate in itself. Yeah. Well, I, I guess if you consider that it's possible, uh, I, maybe I've got this wrong, but I mean, anyone could get diabetes, is that right? I mean, no one's immune from it. There, there are nice little... Um, sort of risk calculators for developing type 2 diabetes. Diabetes UK have one, the Leicester, which is an excellent uh, research unit, uh, some sort of world-class scientists there, have uh, developed these scores and based on your ethnic background, your age, your weight, whether you smoke, your cholesterol levels, your other blood fat levels, your, your blood pressure, that all can predict risk. You know, so some people might have a risk that's, 1% now, so they're not likely to get it for another 50, 60 years. So, but other people, it might be sort of a, a 10, 20, 30% risk of diabetes in the next sort of 5 to 10 years. So, and it does fit along sort of um, genetic lines and also in terms of sort of certain ethnic groups have a much higher risk of uh, developing type 2 diabetes at a lower body weight. Yeah. And and it, it's not the sort of thing that you can necessarily just look at someone and say that person's obviously diabetic. I mean, I know in my own life, I've, my uh, my grandmother died um, uh, as a result of a diabetic uh, coma. In fact, before I was born, um, and I also remember when I when I when I was young, <clears throat> I can't believe I said that. Um, when I was younger, um, a a uh, a colleague 
who, um, or more of a, well, wasn't a friend, but someone I knew who worked with someone I knew as a closer description, was a PE teacher, and he was he was like the fittest guy ever, captain of the uh, local rugby team, super duper duper fit, and I just remember, like, suddenly the next day, everyone was in shock because he had died in the night from a, some sort of diabetic-related issue, and he was, like, 30 years old, and like I said, super lean, ripped to the bone, fit as hell, but you know, died. And, and so it is a serious long-term condition, there's no mm. doubt about that. But quickly saying that there's no reason why you should not enjoy life. And I think one of, the, one of the key messages to try and encourage people to get the right sport, get the right help, get people, have get professionals at the work with it and other, other people they work with that understand them, they don't tell them what to do, but they work with them so they can enjoy life and get the most out of life. Which you know, I think is a good message for anybody. Yeah, you know, life does have risks, and unfortunately, you do hear of um, what sometimes sounds like dead in bed syndrome, where you know, for, for unknown reasons, sometimes people sort of pass away. You know, mm. that can happen with type one diabetes. You know, we do hear of many things. There's new stories recently about the number of amputations um, related to diabetes, and whether that is sort of then that automatically gets linked on the the obesity epidemic. And, but it's, a, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And, and I think we, as practitioners, we need to go back to working with individuals, working, you know, we, we've got good ideas of the evidence. There's multiple ways of working with people, both from a lifestyle intervention and other interventions. But we need to work with people to find out what they think they can do, what they can cope with, what they can manage long-term, rather than say, oh, this is a sort of, in, in, in my world, this is the best diet for you. It's not appropriate. We need to. There's a range of diets. What's the best one for you? What's the one you can live with? What's the one you can enjoy? Because the, the bottom line is, yeah, you can have a longer life, but life without quality is that worth striving for? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, and this isn't related specifically to diabetes, but I, I think you know the more I've learned about these things is. We know a lot more about, for example, how nutrition can influence uh, performance and body composition than we do necessarily about how it affects things like longevity. Have I got that right, or am I completely off the... Well, to, to, to be a part, you know, in mice, we know quite a lot that uh, if we reduce energy intake of mice, we can get them to live longer. Right. Humans are probably a bit trickier, for, for obvious reasons. The length of our lifespan and the... the we don't just happily sit in cages. Yeah, yeah, you're damn right. <laughs> so they, they, they often. I often read, you know, um, from various sources about diabetes, and you commonly see this statement that that diabetes has become or is becoming a, a sort of a widespread epidemic. It, it, I mean, is that accurate? There are more cases. Uh, the question is, is being slightly purist, it's worth looking at what epidemic means. Yeah. Is it more cases than we would expect? Um, and that's sort of an interesting concept. Is there more cases than we expect? People are living longer. People are not um, falling to other conditions. So yeah, if you're eliminating cause, other causes of illness and death, You've got to have something go wrong with your body at some point. Mm. So you're living longer, you're not getting other diseases. We are getting heavier, we know that's a risk factor. We are becoming physically less active, we know that's a risk factor. So put these together, we are going to have more cases. Whether that is an epidemic, 
possibly is using the word epidemic in a media environment helpful, possibly because we get attention to a condition so more work is in this area, more funding, more awareness of the condition so people can get treatment earlier. Is it helpful if it starts causing people to switch off? Possibly not. So it's that fine line between making people aware, making people take action, and making people just put their head in the sand. And that, you know, is a very fine it's fine line and it's often crossed yeah i think i i think whether we look at it as a you know do we use that word properly or we're using it to add a bit of drama to the statement but i I guess either way i mean it's a serious problem obviously it's a serious problem yeah whether it will actually bankrupt the nhs and all those sorts of scare stories you know it's got to fight its corner against other long-term diseases for, for money, for attention, for awareness. Yeah. And it's got to position that way. And you can, you know, is it as bad as people don't know? You know there's, there's, I think someone looked at the statistics of the number of cases increasing. Some of that was from people living longer. Some of that was from other things that are happening. Mm. And, you know, changing diagnostic criteria, which happened in the late 90s, um, through to now being at screen of H1C, as you increase numbers, it's easier to test for, you know, the, 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 the um, NICE guidance, which follows on from the National um, Service Frameworks for Diabetes, all means we're more, much more aware of it. So we don't have more cases. We need to, but is it better to have diabetes and know about it and be able to look after yourself, have a healthy lifestyle, hopefully you can enjoy, or be unaware of diabetes and not make any changes? Yeah. And personally, I think you're probably better in being aware of a condition and being able to act on it positively rather than make no changes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and also you, you gotta, I, I guess if, if you're going to live your lifestyle a certain way, which isn't um, necessarily the way we're designed to live our lifestyles, in, in, to use the analogy... You know, if you if you if you've got a sports car like a Porsche, but you drive it off road all the time, you shouldn't be that surprised that it's it's gonna it's probably gonna suffer some some major damage. You know, in the same way, in our society, huge numbers of people are inactive, um, and and combine that with some other factors, maybe that's a big catalyst for diabetes. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, you often when you read about this again. Um, we, you know, you often see the importance of exercise, and we'll get we'll get specifically into nutrition and exercise in a minute because I, I don't want to be so clinical about this. But, mm. but, 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 do you think that that is also a factor? We're maybe looking at this the wrong way around. You know, it, it maybe it's just the consequence of things like physical inactivity. Uh, I think that there's some def- definite sort of mileage in that. Oh, great fun, sorry. Um, that we need to move more. Um, we need to be more active, less sedentary. Because you know, we, I did a nice study when I was at Chester uh, um, with uh, Professor John Buckley. Um, uh, it was linked to um, trust me, I'm a doctor. Where we actually worked with some state agents and had them standing up or sitting down for a day, uh, fed them the same lunch. And unsurprisingly, their bodies could get rid of the glucose out of the, the, the system quicker if they're standing up at work. So it's simple things about reduce sedentary time. Well, as environment is part of the problem. As it happens, um, as we're doing this podcast, I am I am actually standing because I'm using one of those standing desks, um, 
which referred to one of those studies, I think, when I read oh, the literature. No, that's, so, that's nice. I've actually got a set of box files and made my own. <laughs> it does and the same I thing. I bet, you the same I, job. I bet you I spent a hell of a lot more money on my version. <laughs> you probably did, because mine are box files of old coursework, which needed archiving, so I've archived them as a deck. No, very sensible. Although mine's got a nice up and down button, and it looks very James Bond when I press it, so... Anyway, um, so anyway, as I said, I, you know, my interests and the direction of my podcast is more aimed at people working with um, either athletes or physically active people like recreational athletes and so on. So, um, as I said, I want to get into a bit more of, of, of that area of active people and nutrition and so on and diabetes. But just quickly... Um, because I think it's worth getting into this. How how do we diagnose diabetes? And maybe if we are if we're personal trainers or sports coaches or nutritionists or whatever, working with someone who we suspect, you know what, I think this person could be diabetic. Obviously, we, we need to refer them to the appropriate um, you know doctor, etc. Um, you know, but what would we be looking for in that? Well, as a sort of is you're looking at younger people, and if you start with uh, sort of adolescents, which some of your some trends might be working with, and young adults, um, probably mainly should be type one diabetes. So if, if they are going to loo more often, which is you know, not something you might expect them sort of exercising, they're thirsty than normal. I know when people exercise, they're going to be thirsty and they'll be taking more fluid. But if they're they to, if they're tired, if they're fatiguing quicker, and, and particularly if they're losing weight, you know, if you've got someone you're working with, they're losing weight, and particularly if they're losing muscle when you wouldn't expect them to, they're, they're the telltale warning signs. And then there's a four T's of type one diabetes, and that needs getting checked out straight away. You need many urgent sort of checking because they're, if they have the type one diabetes, they need to be sort of showing how to use insulin, get properly checked out, and the education to follow. Type 2 diabetes is a little bit more subtle. So the, the signs of that, it can be linked to weight gain, can be linked to weight loss. So that's not really how tends to be people carrying a bit more weight. They still might be sort of going a little bit more often. They may say they're getting up together a little bit at night. So it's, it's that pattern of going to the toilet. They may be sort of, if they're exercising, complaining of itching in sort of the armpits or in the groin because yeast can sometimes grow in there and get infections. So that, that can be a clue. Um, also, sort of, you know, they might be complaining of the tightness. So you might have someone you're working with and sort of, you know, they're not feeling able to come to sessions. And, and sort of, if that's why they probably need to be checked out again to test, you know, yeah, you can do some screening with urine, but that's not recommended anymore. You do blood tests. Two blood tests you either do, either do a glucose test or something called a HBO and solutions. The, the hemoglobin, the type of hemoglobin, the A1, which actually circulates around your blood for the three months uh, the red blood cell tends to live for, three or four months the red blood cell is for, and if there's more glucose floating around with it, more of it. So you can actually look at the, the amount, the ratio, of um, this HbA1c, the hemoglobin, that's got glucose structure. And there's a, the, the amount that, if it's above 48 millimoles per mole for the HbA1c, that's indicative of diabetes. If you've got fasting glucose, if it's above 7, that's indicative of diabetes. If you're not going to be any symptoms, we talk about the thirst, the tiredness, 
um, those sort of things, you should really have two tests because you know things can vary from them. If there is a bit of doubt, that can also lead to doctors recommending a glucose test where you come in fasting after at least 12 hours. And it's important to eat normally before that because that can affect the test. And you, you'll have a fasting blood test and then you'll drink 75 grams of glucose and they'll take another blood test two hours later. And if the fasting is above seven, that's, as I've already said, diagnostic. But if it's still above 11, from one to two hours, that's also diagnostic for diabetes. So there's a range of ways of, of checking out. And as you said earlier, this concept of pre-diabetes um, in the UK, if the fasting is above six, that's called impaired fasting glucose. And if it's above 7.8 to two hours, that's impaired glucose tolerance. There is sort of, sort of markers around HGLC as well, which have been looked at. And that's where this concept of pre-diabetes comes in, which is thought to sort of be increased uh, risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It often comes along with high blood pressure and altered blood fats, so they could also be part of the risk. Uh, and so whether you actually look to treat that in its own right or treat with sort of a more active lifestyle and better food choices, yeah, the debate is wide and varied on that one. Right, okay. Well, <clears throat> again, you've done a bit of a segue there. So the, uh, the, this idea of, of diet and physical activity in particular, because that's most of our listeners are interested in exercise, uh, either personally or, uh, and or help other people in that regard. Um, and with that often goes, you know, some interest in, in nutrition. So... You know, generally, we'll get specific on this, but generally, how significant um, is paying attention to physical activity and, and nutrition to um, someone with diabetes then? With type 2 diabetes, you know, particularly if it's associated with carrying excess body weight, we know that helping to lose body weight can help improve control of the diabetes. There are many different dietary approaches to do that, and that's probably another completely different discussion. But physical activity is known to help. If you look at the diabetes prevention studies, which have been done in America, India, China, Scandinavia, they included physical activity alongside sort of a lifestyle diet approach, and they reduced the risk of developing diabetes in those populations by nearly 60%. So we know it has a big effect. That's far more than drugs, far more than, you know, yeah, the other arm, so it's clearly a little bit And we've got data, you know, they happen to use a low-fat, low-energy diet, which, you know, again, is a debate. And, and the Chinese data of up to 20 years, that is still protecting people from developing type 2 diabetes. So we do know that combination physical activity with sort of better food choices can help both control diabetes and reduce the risk of developing diabetes in those high-risk and that's currently what they're looking to do with the, the programming via NHS England through Public Health England in terms of preventing diabetes. They're trying to work out what strategies are best for doing that. So, when, you know, when, when you read about this and when you listen to people discussing this, and I'm talking either medical people or researchers or experts or even our <clears throat> favourite of all the, the sort of the bro scientists out there, you, you can't help but come across the I word, insulin. And people often will discuss, you know, how relevant it is to 
manipulate insulin one way or the other. You know, people talk about this this diet's good because it does this to insulin, and this exercise is good for that because it you know it helps support insulin resistance. It helps avoid the insulin mediated pathways, all that sort of thing. Um, you know, is 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 trying to manipulate insulin specifically. I mean, not that that us as non-medical people should be trying to do these things. I think that's another conversation we can get into. But but is is that even the right you know path for this? So are, are people getting over obsessed with insulin specifically? I think you've answered it. Yes, they're getting over obsessed with insulin uh, because type. Two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, whatever you want to call that sort of picture of insulin resistance, is typified by having sort of a hyperinsulinia. So it's a chronic overproduction of insulin. That'll be you know, before you've eaten as well as after you've eaten. And, and by saying, well, this diet has this effect, that has that diet has that effect. Now you can you can look at something like whey, which is bro science stuff. Mm. Um, and, but the you can actually look at the data of the nice paper published recently by the group in Australia, which focused on GI, and that has secreted insulin. So you could say, oh, that's bad because you get more insulin, so that's bad with insulin resistance. Or you could say, well, hang on a minute, is it good because it actually has an effect through the good hormones, which actually facilitates insulin to be secreted, but actually reduces the effect of glucagon, so it shifts things in the favour of metabolism. So. Are you talking about a normal or a slightly enhanced uh, postprandial response, which is good, or are you talking about a pathological um, hyperinsulinemia, which is not good? And whether we can actually manipulate that to that degree with diet, yeah, you can probably in the lab with your rat and your cells, but in real life, I think we need to look bigger picture and get people off the backsides and get them making better food choices. And those minutiae of detail really are... Uh, so it's not always helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've often talked about some of these things being a bit like the front wheel and rear wheel of a bicycle. And often we get into these conversations, well, not we, but people will, particularly on places like Twitter, they start arguing about what's more important. Um, but they both, you know, they all are, aren't they? And it, it's yeah. sort of this one without the other type conversation is a bit asinine, really because um, that's not the world we live in in the real world we you know we do we do have to eat we do have to you know to be active and and all these sorts of things um so you know when we talk about specifically then the the role that diet has potentially um with this what are what are the things that we should be uh considering as as important areas of concern or, or what are the areas we should be we you know we should be focusing on to positively modifying a person's diet so i think yeah there's been some debate of distinction between type 1 and type 3 diabetes in terms of dietary approach type people with type 1 diabetes because you're being manipulating a drug do that you know we need to recognize limitations and be involved in the care team. The person living with type 1 diabetes will know a lot about manipulating their diet and insulin, and that needs to be listened to. So we need to have that up front. And a lot of their approach will be eating a 
what we can do a mixed general healthy diet and then manipulating their, their mealtime insulins with the amount of carbohydrate so if we put that to one side they're very interesting from an exercise perspective and the science of exercise is very interesting type 1 diabetes in type 2 diabetes what's the best diet for someone with type 2 diabetes I think it comes back to the answer one they'll stick to yeah and that for some people could be adjusting carbohydrates Personally, I'm not, not sold on the evidence of having to go very, very low carbohydrate, but some reduction in carbohydrate can be beneficial for quite a large number of people. Other people might go for a more Mediterranean diet. diet. There's good evidence for the DASH type diet, which is again heavy based on fruit and vegetables. You, know, you can actually even go, and I know you're not going to like this, for a vegetarian diet, so it's safe. And those working. You know, there's a whole range of diets that work, so it's one that can be stuck to. It's going to be probably slightly lower in energy than the diet pre-diagnosis, particularly if they're overworked and, and they're looking to do that. And trying to encourage that to go alongside other lifestyle measures, be that physical activity, as well as looking at the risk factors such as smoking cessation as well. Yeah. Because I think I think what's interesting is, is at least from the people that I've spoken to, and, and you would be the only real expert on this, but I've spoken to people who seem to think they know stuff about this, particularly nutritionally type people. And they, they're always so obsessed about diet and nutrition. And, you know, and I say this because I'm, you know, my main thing is nutrition, but they rarely talk about the importance of exercise or um, specifically why exercise is so influential uh, to this we all agree that nutrition you know is important we know that um it's probably best not to consume sugar all day long and all those sorts of things but uh, you know we that's what we get obsessed with uh, uh, you know mm. and the previous conversation about insulin and it's always about oh you know sugar does this and blah blah blah, blah leads to insulin resistance and so on but exercise really is a um uh, oh, I'm going to use the word super. So it's a real super therapy, isn't it? It's a super drug. It's a super, it's a super, super, super thing for our health um, in many ways. But but perhaps exercise is is the really big thing with this. It, I mean, is that is that how you would see it? I possibly think it's almost the Cinderella of it. There's there's a very few groups actually doing a lot of work to promote it. It's not talked about every. every sort of um, opportunity and this is um, you know it's not widely taught or hasn't been widely taught in um healthcare settings hmm. yeah that's that's the other bit of a tragedy really you know you've got um exercise works which you think Adam Gates is doing a great job going into medical schools going into schools of nursing sort of, sort of working with sort of nutritionists as well and dietitians in promoting that every time you know you're having a conversation about the health yeah, there's one aspect of diet, but you also need to talk about physical activity. You know, if you go back to your diabetes, you know, throw a bit of science in there, what happens when you exercise? If you actually do resistance exercise, you can increase the amount of muscle mass. Oh, muscle is the actual stuff that insulin works on to take glucose out of the blood. Probably can be useful. And what do you get sort of a loss of as you get older? You tend to get sort of atrophy of the muscles, you know, to the point of sarcopenia individuals. Oh, they become insulin resistant. There's got to be something useful there by promoting exercise and actually to maintain that muscle mass. And um, I'm doing exercise. We know that exercise, and going back to basic physiology, physiology that you taught, you know, 
way back when is that in that moment after you've exercised, that first 20 minutes is why you need to eat because you get more carbohydrate muscle. Why? They're more sensitive to insulin and you recruit those glute force through the, the cell, cell membrane more readily. Mm. So it just, you know, from what we're taught about the basics of science, from what we see, it's, it makes, it's no brainer really, promoting people to be more active. Yeah, so improves things. Absolutely, and, the, the, and there's so many associated benefits with being more physically active. I mean, of course, I could do a decade of weekly podcasts on, on this, I reckon, but, you know, it, it is fair to say that um, I don't have any specific um, references in my head to mind, but perhaps you can help me with this, but I, kn I know that people that are more physically active tend to make better choices with, with their diet, don't they? Um, generally, well, yeah. well, there's, there's, the the other it's been disputed that exercise actually increases appetite. Yeah, that's the um, well, all right. The, quality the, the quality of diet. I, I was thinking, but I guess that isn't um, isn't necessarily going to happen when you're hungry, because of course you'll go for anything at that point, won't you? But but also, also if you are also making positive health choices, and this is possibly you know where you can get around that really interesting area is breakfast essential right uh, and you know physiologically you cannot you know you, there's not really an evidence base that it, it is essential from a physiological point of view it definitely doesn't boost metabolism despite what many many people say but by enacting in sort of a, a positive choice to have breakfast that may then lead to continue positive behaviors later on so by choosing to be more active by choosing to move your chair away to the office and stand to work for a while that may sort of set you off on on more sort of more positive yeah and it's yeah not one stamp cheese but temperatures you're liking yourself you have that positive sort of effect on, on, on what you're trying to do to your body so that may then reflect on other choices yeah i mean that you've touched on to something which i think is interesting you know, again, in, in nutrition, particularly in sports nutrition, we frequently talk about things like, you know, how much protein, how much carbohydrates, and we, we constantly ignore whether it's on purpose or not, I don't know, but, our, you know, our obsession into performance and muscles and and body comp and so on is at the expense of, of food. We don't eat protein, we eat, you know, we eat mm. food, and, uh, you know, and, and actually you can go further than that, can't you? We don't just eat food, we eat meals. Um, yeah. and, and, and what happens at a meal time? Well, you're more likely to be in a social environment where you're talking to your partner, to your friends, your family. But you know, if if, if what you're going to do is have a protein shake or a, or a protein bar, that's probably in a more antisocial situation. Um, and maybe there's something there too. You know, health is not is not just the byproduct of being fit or eating well there is other things like i, I would imagine social and emotional health and all yeah. that other stuff you know and and you, you can look at other cultures models of definitions of health and you know yeah again complete sidetrack but just link that i promise if you look at the concept of maori health they have ancestral health in there they have this wider spiritual health in there. And obviously that links, links nicely back because they have a very rugby team, so that links nicely to sport again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, that was a quick one. <laughs> was a quick segue. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you brought that back quick. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I do go up and down a lot with this idea of is it healthy or unhealthy to miss breakfast, for example. And I would agree with you 
from my own experiences, having experimented with these things, um, uh, not so much on myself, but with with many clients, um, you know, and with intermittent fasting and all these other things that come out there, um, <clears throat> tools in the toolbox. Um, but um, you know, there's no. I don't think. I don't think we can say things like, "Yeah, well, eating more often speeds up your metabolism." Not eating specifically at a time of day because I mean breakfast is a time of day really um mm. you know we we're, I think I think it, it has to be more of an individualized situation and I think if someone misses breakfast the consequence of that is that they tend to, let's say they get hungrier um later in the day and the result of that is they make worse food choices um yeah that's going to be a bigger factor. Whereas, yeah, of course, missing out breakfast, um, as in just a feeding at that time of day, but still eating the required amount of nutrition and, you know, uh, and energy, etc., that you need um, for the remainder of the day. Let's say you still eat three meals, but not necessarily at that first phase of the day. Maybe that isn't such a big issue, but I think you're right. It, it, the impact it could have on behaviors that 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 ends up having an impact on physiology, that's probably a bigger concern. And it's likely uh, breakfast in a more controlled environment, such as your own home, yeah. it's a more controlled over the food choice. Whereas if you're hungry in a, sort of an outside environment, the food choices might be more tempting and less hard to control. So yeah, an, in, an interesting study would be to uh, look at the effect of not having breakfast when you're staying in a hotel, then you move into somewhere where it's a healthier food environment where you move away from the fire breakfast. Yeah. I'll see if that. Uh, I think yeah, we've got to remember that behaviour has a big impact on on human health and human food choices. Absolutely. And this, as much as the science is interesting, it's actually we override a lot of that by behaviour. Yeah, and we and I've done a podcast all about over sciencing stuff and. Um, in a, another podcast, um, you know the the, the phrase, uh, you, you know you can't you can't consider biology without psychology or psychology without biology. You know there's that there's that there's there is an in, in, an interact interaction between those and yeah. So um, let's just talk a bit then a bit more about activity uh, because I know there is going to be a difference between acute exercise and and the chronic effects of exercise we're not just talking about a workout and i know that you know the way the body handles things like glucose management um glucose metabolism um the insulin thing you know the 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 difference between just a one-off or the occasional exercise is not is not the same thing as as regular physical activity could you maybe explore that well, that's a big one. Um, if you're looking, and also the type of exercise. So, mm. if you're looking at very high intensity exercise, because you'll be mainly going through anaerobic exercise, you'll be using glucose, possibly from glycogen, and that's from reducing lactic acid. That can, some people with diabetes can actually increase their blood glucose. You need to be slightly cautious with particularly type 1 diabetes, and this is why it's very important to have the input from their normal clinical and medical care team, is if their glucose already starts higher, it could mean they've not got enough insulin in their bodies, and they can actually start becoming quite dangerously metabolically out of control and ketotic and ketoacidotic. 
is a risk, particularly if they're with glucose, depending on when they're last took insulin and a few other factors. But generally, if the literature is somewhere between about 13 and 14 in type 1 diabetes, there is a big risk and you should be engaging in exercise because of this risk of sort of the, the glucose being broken down to lactate, lactate going down to the liver, and that can then sort of form ketone bodies along with fats um, in type 1 diabetes. So the intense exercise, you know, you've got someone with type 2 diabetes, who's playing a sort of a intermittent high-intensity sports such as squash, and they do a test after the glucose level can go up. Obviously, if you're working with people in a competition environment, the, the stress of competition can cause some people to, to raise their glucose because the fight or flight response adrenaline can have that effect. So that's, that's different in, in one episode. And if you're doing something more long-term, such as stage exercise, you tend to be more oxidative, you tend to be sort of taking glucose out of the circulation, so that can slowly lower people's glucose. If they're on, you know, on treatments, the insulins and some of the, the drugs like sort of nairis, that can cause them to go too low, and that can be a risk, and then that's again why sort of medical input's useful in those individuals. In people that are not managed with any medication for diabetes or pre-diabetes, yeah, that, that low is a good sign that the, the exercise is working and they're getting sort of better equipment to the glute force and, and sort of t- taking the fuel out of the, the circulation. And in terms of one-off exercise, yeah, that, that will then, if you look at the literature, 24 to 48 hours on a type of exercise the individual, the effect of the sensitization will fall off. Regular exercise, obviously, you can maintain that and you obviously have training effects which could mean you sort of start to adapt to it. So you might get some more muscle, you, you might have more sensitivity to it in long term and you can get better effects. So, you know, as, as with anything, it needs to be maintained behaviour to actually have a true effect long term on health. Yeah, I, I mean, it just shows you, doesn't it, how important exercise is, um, things that have a positive impact on, on muscle mass, which, of course, are things that, that are avoided uh, in our early years and late years of life. It, it, do you think that, that that's a particularly relevant concern, given that those are maybe our more, you know, we're more at risk perhaps at, at, at those phases of life? And um, uh, yeah, I've got some some students looking at the, the question for high intensity training protocols on risk factors around diabetes this year. So that'd be an interesting one to look at. Hmm. And you know, we do know, and there's increasing work in the, the muscle groups between Nottingham and Birmingham, looking at sort of um, exercise and, and muscle in the aging population. And we do need to encourage some sort of look at how we approach exercising in the aging population and how we maintain that low putting on the muscle, we actually maintain the strength and the function of the muscles rather than say exercise is something for young people. You know, activity, exercise, it's got to be enjoyable for all, it's got to be something you stick to and something that you can adapt with and stick to long term life and ideally. So, you know, on the balance of the available evidence that's out there, and dare we actually talk about what we do know and rather than what we don't know, but you know, given diabetes is is rife, uh, I'm not going to use the, uh, the the epidemic word. We'll just call it rife. <laughs> um, you know, us as practitioners, whether we're personal trainers or working with elite athletes, as I said at the beginning, it's very likely we're going to come across these people on the balance of all that and with the understanding that if we even remotely suspect this person might have diabetes if they haven't yet been 
diagnosed, therefore we must refer them to, you know, to their doctor for that. What, what, you know, just sort of as a closing part to this, what, what are the things though that we should feel comfortable in recommending to these people? I think the first thing is, if they're suspicious themselves or you've had a conversation, not to worry. You know, it's something that can be managed, it's something that can be sorted out. And it's important they get the right advice and everyone works together. Yeah. There's, I think, a lot of ideas about any sort of health intervention is you want to try and deal with that person on your own, but you're much better working as a team if have this discussion group before. Mm. And what the other message I'd probably look at is if someone's suspicious of having some diabetes, the things that would make you improve your health, have you reach your goals, generally would also help improve that condition as well. Yeah. There's one reason why a lot of you know, dietitians who are interested in diabetes are also interested in sports, because they focus on energy metabolism and how food gets converted into work. So if you look at it in the reassuring way is, yes, there'll be some changes needed, but you can just look at what you're trying to achieve before can still be achieved afterwards. And just mind means some sort of checks me out being done. You know, I, I can remember sort of working with um, someone who had diabetes for I think it was like 50 years and they're an amateur bodybuilder, but wow. in competition still. Wow. Um, yeah, there's, there's several cases of very successful amateur bodybuilders who've had diabetes for 20 or even more years. Uh, and it just is learning to live with it, learning to enjoy life, not letting it stop you. And I think that is. That's probably an important message that the things, you know, if, if you've got a personal trainer working with a client who wants to be healthier, then suddenly they think they've got type 2 diabetes and they've developed type 2 diabetes. Is that the end of the world? Well, no, because what they're trying to achieve by coming to a personal trainer is to become healthier. And that still remains. And by being more active, by making better food choices, they'll get healthier and their diabetes will improve as well. Yeah, no, no, thanks for that. It's very sensible. I mean, I, you know, I, one thing I think might crop up in some people's mind, though, is some people, and by this I mean the professionals, um, uh, doctors and, and dietitians and so on, um, some some people in those sectors are better at dealing with this than others. It, it, if we are going to seek advice either for ourselves or for our clients or refer, who, who I mean, who are the people that... that that are experts, bearing in mind that we're talking about active people here. So, so if you're talking about people with type 1 diabetes, their diabetes team, uh, uh, a dietitian, and if their dietitian isn't particularly comfortable with sort of um, sports or knowledgeable, they'll know people. They'll know people in working with the hospitals. There are a number of two or three dietitians who are really working with elite athletes in the sports field who are the best contact and, and know through their networks. Um, in terms of sort of from, from a medicine side of things, you know, there are one or two doctors working with very elite, you know, there's, there's a group at um, State Mandeville where, where they're working with a lot of the elite people with type 1 diabetes um, and one of them actually in England rugby squad at the moment. So, you know, there are, there are people out there or more recreational ones is have, have the conversation because what we tend to forget is someone who's had type 1 diabetes for 5-10 years knows a lot of how their body works and it's just working with a healthcare professional or possibly with the, the input from the physical activity 
sort of advice on what that workload is, and it can be worked through between the three of them. No, thank you. With sort of outside sort of contact to, to um, sort of the experts if they're working at that very elite level. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'm always very, very consciously aware that it, you know, that we really should refer to people um, for things that we're not specifically trained to deal with. So if you're a PT or a nutritionist or a, you know a coach, and your client is, you know, for all intents and purposes, what they call apparently healthy, you know, you do what you do. But if they do have these issues, you need to be mindful that it's very complex and very dangerous potentially, and 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 you need to recognise the risks involved in giving advice to people that you may yourself not know enough about and therefore don't go there. <laughs> and actually it's a strength to work as a team. It is. It shows you're connected to people who know their area and are valued rather than thinking I must know myself and risk making a mistake and lose credibility. Sure. Yeah, and just a little business tip for the, uh, the listen- listeners. I have always found in the growth of my own practice is uh, when I start referring to people uh, they start referring back to you (laughs) so it's good for your business too Um, so listen Dwayne thank you so much Um, that brings us to the end of of this uh, podcast I appreciate your time and and expertise Mm -hmm. as always Um, there's there are actually all sorts of things that I thought we could uh, get into on another podcast so we'll have to uh, we'll have to come up with another another time um, to get into some of these other topics, but um, it's uh, oh for listeners um, that don't know um, much about you. Um, I know you told us a bit about yourself at the beginning, but how do they find out more about you? Um, you know, like Twitter or websites or whatever. They can either sort of find me through the University of Nottingham website. I'm linked there as a sort of in the School of Biosciences or on Twitter at dr. Dwayne, G-D-O-N-E, R-D, which is uh, the Twitter handle, which I've changed for various reasons, which I won't go into now, and you should find out, I tend to rant on about things from time to time, so I just need to be warned about that, I can be quite sarcastic. <laughs> Nothing wrong with sarcasm. Um, yeah, no, and you do tweet frequently really good um, latest papers and research and stuff, I, I have found that useful multiple times. Um, so anyway, thanks Dwayne. Um, for no the listeners that want to learn more about this podcast, uh, past episodes, that sort of thing, just go to um, our website at guruperformance.com. Uh, we are, of course, on um, iTunes, on Stitcher, and all sorts of other things. But if you go to guruperformance.com, you'll find it. Um, um, if you wish to actually learn more about these sorts of things uh, more formally, more academically, uh, of course, uh, University of Nottingham with, with Dwayne there, there'll be some programs that you can do. Um, you can internationally take part in the ISSN uh, Postgraduate Diploma in Sports and Exercise uh, Nutrition. Um, learn about that at issndiploma.com. If you wish to come learn with me and do a, a master's degree in sports nutrition, you can do that with me at the University of Middlesex in London. Um, you can see that on the Middlesex University website or linked via guruperformance.com. And uh, I would like to say thank you to um, the sponsors of this podcast, Healthspan Elite, um, who produce um, sports nutrition uh, supplements, all tested by Inform Sport. 
Um, but of course, I am Laurent Bannock and look forward to bringing the podcast back to you very soon. <laughs>